Amen. Take your copy of God's Word. Open, if you would, to Matthew chapter 10 this morning, please. Matthew chapter 10, and beginning in verse 1, as we continue our sermon series in Matthew, we've talked about the mission of Jesus. Jesus is building a kingdom that will have no end. He inaugurates it in chapter 3, when we remember that Jesus is baptized by John in the wilderness. John says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I have need to be baptized of you. And Jesus says, John, do the baptizing, and he does it, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, hear ye him. Immediately, the spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and Jesus will say, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. He is the only one that you should serve. And at the end of those 40 days, Jesus comes out victorious, accomplishing what you and I and Adam and everyone else in history cannot, to refuse to give in to temptation. And then we see him in his earthly ministry, giving the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, Jesus Christ himself, in that sermon on the mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. For my sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. He tells us what to do when you give. Not if you give, but when you give. He tells us what to do when we pray. Not if we pray, but when we pray. He tells us what to do when we fast. He says we all do it for the glory of God. And then we get into the particular miracles. Chapter 8 and chapter 9 highlight this extensively. As Jesus is healing the body, he is first and foremost always examining the soul. He is preparing the disciples for the greatest mission they will ever receive in all of their lives. They are just about to be sent out. And remember last week, the week before, harvest is plenteous. The laborers are few. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. We have the same challenge that we have always had. There's a harvest to gain and laborers in need. And we are to be sent out. And in chapter 10, Jesus shows us how it's done. Beginning in verse 1, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease, every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12, Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without pain, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words... 
Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Here a commission takes place, a sending out. In fact, the word send out translated in Greek is apostello. It's where we get the word apostle. It literally translates to I send. See, part of the problem we have in the church today and in seminaries today and in educational institutions today is we have way too many people who simply want to learn rather than people who want to put their faith into action. Remember, knowledge alone puffeth up. Obedience is what we're after. We're not just after knowing everything. We're after doing what we're told. We're not to be simply hearers of the word, but rather do it. And what it comes down to, as it always does, is the issue of authority. Many people don't like to hear that word nowadays. We want to be free. We don't want to be under anybody's authority. That's the natural human inclination. But we are truly all under the authority of the Lord. Jesus says even himself, I came not to do my own will, but the will of my Father who is in heaven. And here, Jesus allows the disciples to share in his authority because he recognizes something that has always been true. Any power that's given comes from God. It's all connected to his purpose. And so someone who professes Jesus but lives apart from the power of God's Spirit is actually in grave danger. A number of years ago, I don't know if you watched commercials back when they used to be good, but there was a Super Bowl commercial that had a Volkswagen car. It was advertising it, and it had a child dressed in a Darth Vader costume from Star Wars attempting to use the Force around the house. If you've seen the Star Wars movies, the Force allows you to levitate, levitate things and breathe things up and all this other things. So he's using that side of the Force or attempting to, and so he points his hands at the family dog lying on the floor. And the dog looks up like, what in the world's going on? And nothing happens. But he doesn't give up. He goes to the bedroom, and he raises his hands toward a doll seated on the bed, and that doll stares right back blankly and doesn't move an inch. And he drops his arms to his sides in frustration, gets discouraged. So he goes to the kitchen. He's still in uniform, and he stands dejectedly at the counter. He's got the black helmet head on his hand. And then his dad pulls into the driveway, and he runs out to the car, not to greet his dad, but attempt to make one last attempt. His dad tries to catch him, but he doesn't go, so his dad goes into the house, and the boy attempts one last time to point dramatically at this vehicle. And he waits, he raises his hands, and suddenly the yellow light signals of the car turn on, and the engine starts, and the boy stumbles backwards. And you see the father in the background who started the car from his kitchen using the push-button ignition, and the kid looks towards the house, then back again towards the car. He doesn't know what's happened. He just knows that something has finally worked. And the commercial illustrates a powerful principle in the kingdom of God that just as that kid can't do anything, Without the intervention of the Father, neither can you and I do any work of the Lord apart from God. Now, we can wave our hands. We can pat ourselves on the back. But unless God is in it, they labor in vain who build it. And so all of life, everything that we're doing, everything that we are, must be lived in the power of God. And the writer of Matthew gives us 
one of the apostles, gives us these particular names. You remember something about Simon, Peter. When Jesus is trying to correct Peter, he often refers to him as Simon. When he's trying to build him up, he refers to him as Peter. Simon Peter is the very definition of what it means to be impulsive. I mean, he says right on, right what's on his mind. Sometimes he gets it wrong, and when he gets it wrong, he gets it really wrong. But sometimes he gets it right, and when he gets it right, he gets it really right. At one point, Jesus will say, whom do you say that I am? And Simon will say, some say that you are David, some say that you're a prophet, some say that you're something else, and Jesus will say, whom do you say that I am? And Simon steps up and says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood hadn't given that to you, but my father who is in heaven, and upon this rock I will build my church. We know a little bit about Andrew, his brother, who was also a fisherman, to which Jesus had declared those words, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Andrew did that. We think of James, who is the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, both of whom were close to the Lord and who were the sons of thunder. We think of Philip and Bartholomew and Thomas, who's often referred to as a doubter, but really asked probably the same questions that you and I would, and, and often believes at the end of his doubt. Then you have Matthew, who is the tax collector, who is the author of this gospel, despised among men, received by the Lord. You have James, the son of, of, of Alphaeus. You have Thaddeus. You have Simon the Zealot. That is the one who, because he believed so strongly the way he did, was ready to take Israel back by force, if necessary, from the Romans. And Jesus told him that true power only comes from the Lord. And then you have Judas, who betrayed him. These 12 sent out. But very little is actually known about them. Most of them were not memorable men. And if it's so, then we ought to think that the fact that God has chosen people whom the world has often regarded as insignificant to do his wonderful works should be meaningful for us. Twelve ordinary men with an extraordinary God who turned the world upside down. You've heard it said before, God isn't looking for ability. He's looking for availability. And when we give ourselves to him, what we didn't think was possible becomes possible with the Lord. And so he instructs them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather first go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And yet the faith of Gentiles is mentioned throughout the narrative, throughout these stories. Jesus will say to the centurion, greater faith I have not seen in Israel. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. He says, and as you go, proclaim, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, you can't claim the kingdom of God if you don't proclaim the kingdom of God. And if we're not proclaiming Christ, then who is it that we're proclaiming? The power is in the gospel. I don't know about you. I'm fascinated by history and particular traditions throughout history, some which are good, some which are bad. If you woke up early enough to watch King Charles III being coronated in England yesterday, it really is a, a remarkable display. Someone who has almost zero political power in today's culture, yet still has an enormous amount of cultural influence because of the pageantry and the tradition. And notice the scripture that comes out from many of these sayings. A Bible is presented, scripture is quoted. Now most of the people don't believe any of those words but they quote them. 
There's something powerful about the kingdom of God. Even with just words, even when it's doubted, it can be proclaimed. He says, you're to heal the sick. You're to raise the dead. You're to cleanse lepers. You're to cast out demons. I want you to notice something. Whenever God is at work, Satan is never far behind because the advancement of the kingdom of heaven will constantly be met by spiritual warfare. And we understand something that's been going on behind the scenes since the beginning, that there is a rebellion against which the principalities and powers are attempting to overthrow the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We know that Jesus has already won and declared victory, but we're still in the fight. And until he comes, we've got to be faithful to the cause. He says, you've received without pain, therefore give without pay. Trust that the Lord will provide your needs. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, no tunics or sandals or staff. Now remember, they're not staying at the Holiday Inn Express. I mean, this is a, this is a serious thing to go basically without provision because in this initial sending, they are to trust in the Lord for provision. It's teaching us something. In fact, one commentator said this, perhaps the best link is this, not only must you not profit commercially from your powers, but you must go further, traveling in an impoverished state that will make visible a trust in God and God alone for your needs. Can I say this? Whatever your vision, whatever you think God may be calling you to do, if it's not done in faith, it's not big enough. It never has been. If you've got it all figured out, if you've got all your problems solved, you may be living some type of faith, but it's faith in yourself, not in God. Because God requires us to trust in him every moment of every day. Someone else said this. Here's this tie. It's tying in with Matthew chapter 9, the, the harvest and the laborers. The worker here is working for God as a harvest gatherer. And similarly, the provision of God is not thought of as coming from those benefiting from the ministry. That's a worthy ministry. But rather, the provision is thought of as being arranged by God. And so the choice of this food is to underline this thought connection where Jesus is saying in Matthew 6, give us this day our daily bread. He's teaching them to trust in the Lord. And then whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Now there's a sense in which none of us are worthy. In fact, Paul will say much the same thing when we observe the Lord's Supper. He says, make sure you take it in a worthy manner. Well, none of us are perfect. None of us are sinless. But to find out who is worthy, to find out who receives the message with humility as you enter that house greet it and if the house is worthy let your peace come upon it but if it is not worthy let your peace return to you and then he ends with almost a warning and a judgment it's not almost it is a warning and a judgment if anyone will receive you or listen to your words will not receive you will not listen to your words shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town and verse 15 it's truly sobering when he says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. I don't know how much you know about gentle, precious moments, middle class Christianity, suburban Jesus who wants you to throw in a couple of pennies in the offering plate and show up when you can and live your life however you want. 
but he's not in the Bible. He presents you with a stark choice. Either you follow him or you follow yourself, which ultimately is the trail of the devil. He says either you, you enter and you welcome, you receive the gospel with welcome, or it's a warning to you. This is constantly the choice that Jesus makes. You can't just say Jesus is a good philosopher. You can't just say Jesus is a good person. You can't just say, oh, I, I love the teachings of Jesus, Jesus, but let me separate his deity. No, no. If you read scripture simply at face value, you can receive him, you can reject him, but you better not ignore him. And here, he says, there is a heaven to gain and there is a hell to lose and judgment is coming. And you better make sure you're on the right side. We know what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. They were destroyed because of their sin. And so we will be unless we trust in the, in the saving grace of Jesus. And you say, well, that's not fair. Everybody ought to be given a chance. Hey, if you want to talk fairness, why does the innocent, spotless Son of God stay on the cross on your behalf? That's not fair. And yet he doesn't do it because it's fair. He does it because he loves us. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in Mere Christianity, which is an introduction to our faith. Christ says, God, he says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to call off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crowd it or stop it, but to pull it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own shall become yours. Hey, this sending is a difficult sending. This calling is a difficult calling. And yet God has called us to go. Years ago, Margaret Clarkson wanted to go to the mission field. She believed that she'd received that call. And yet her health refused to let her go. And so she became a teacher in a gold mining camp in northern Ontario. It became a very lonely life for her, but she also knew this is where God wanted her to serve him. She had had that desire to serve on the foreign missionary field, but because of her health, she couldn't go. And one day she was reading the verse, John 20, 21, peace be unto you, as my father hath sent me, even so send I you. And while meditating on this verse, she wrote the words, it later became a song, so send I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing. So send I you to toil for me alone. So send I you to bind the bruised and broken or wandering souls to work, to weep, to wake, to bear the burdens of a world of weary. So send I you to suffer for my sake. So send I you to loneliness and longing with heart, a ringing for the loved and known, forsaking home and kindred, friend and dear one. So send I you to know my love alone. So send I you to leave my life's ambition, to die to dear desire, self will resign, to labor long in love where men revile you. So send I you to lose your life in mine. So send I you to hearts made hard by hatred, to eyes made blind because they will not see, to spend though it be blood, 
to spend and spare not, so send I you to taste of Calvary. And we get offended when somebody rejects our invitation to church. Or we're too scared to have an awkward moment to tell them about Jesus. Dear friends, either Christ calls us to give it all or he calls us to give nothing at all. You can be hot, you can be cold. Don't be lukewarm. And don't think that a rejection is a rejection of you. Jesus says if they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. And ultimately, their rejection is not your message. It's the gospel. See, pe people want to water down the gospel. They want to make it to not be offensive. So the church becomes a little bit like the world, and the world becomes a little bit like the church, and we all try to hold hands and make it as, as, as non-binding as possible when that is not at all the gospel message. The gospel is offensive. That someone has to die in your place. That guess what? You're not perfect. You are a sinner. No matter what every parent in the universe is saying about their kids, little Johnny, little Molly sins every single day. And if your kid doesn't sin, then they need to be the Savior. God calls us to trust and receive His grace. I think a lot about the guys when referring to the kingdom of God and the harvest that is coming. I think a lot about the guys who built great buildings knowing that they would never see them finished. You know what the problem with modern architecture is today? All we do is build functional buildings or abstract buildings. We build everything based on how much it's going to cost and how well it would function. And that's all well and good. We need to be good stewards of our money. But sometimes when you look in the Old Testament, why is it that the tabernacle is described like it is in such detail? It takes chapters and chapters. Why is Solomon's temple giving all of this description of exactly how it should be built? It is because God cares for his glory. If you look at temples from hundreds of years ago, great cathedrals, the men building them knew that they would not survive it. If you looked at Westminster Abbey, the columns up front on the top, if you've ever had the privilege to walk up and down the nave, took hundreds of years to put together. A nearly 1,000 year old building, men building upon it, knowing that they would never see the finished result. Dear friends, that's what the church of God has been doing ever since Jesus ascended up into heaven. Building upon it. Knowing that the end result is coming. So that's what we do. By the way, look here. You're not responsible to convert anyone. It's not a success or fail rate, although we ought to make sure that we're not the ones who are offensive. The gospel should be offensive. Don't you be offensive in your language, in your breath, whatever. Don't be offensive. But you're not ultimately responsible for winning anyone to Jesus. You're responsible to tell everyone about Jesus and to let the Holy Spirit do the work. Because no man can come except the Spirit draw, but those who come to him, he will not cast out. We're building that for Jesus. And this is how he describes evangelism and discipleship. I want you to think about the very reason that you're here this morning. I'm not talking about the surface level reason where somebody maybe said, hey, you need to come, invited you to come, or guilt tripped you to come, or, or, or whatever. Whatever reason you're here, I'm thankful that you are. I want you to think about 
why you're here in the first place, why you feel it necessary to worship on a Sunday when everybody else is doing everything else. I'll tell you why. Because somewhere, at some point, somewhere along the way, somebody took the time to tell you about Jesus. And you turn from your sin. And you realize that Jesus sought you and bought you with his redeeming blood. And you notice that your life was no longer yours, but it was his. And you begin to believe the gospel. That's how it's passed down. You think about this. Moses trained Joshua in how to lead. Eli trained Samuel in how to pray. Jesus teaches the apostles right here. Later, Timothy's grandmother, Lois, trains up her daughter, Eunice, who trains up her son, Timothy. Paul will call Titus his son in the faith. And so when it helps, when people grow in spiritual maturity, we got to pass it on. You know, we got a lot of gimmicks out there today. Man, we could put out an advertising sign and do a, do a giveaway and have all kinds of good stuff and draw a crowd. But that's not a church. There's a lot of gimmicks out there today. But the most effective way of reaching people for Jesus is still one-on-one. -on -one. That's the way our faith is passed on. And here's the true measure of success. Not at what you succeed at on your own, but when what you're living for outlives you. That's what you've got to think. Is what I'm living for worth passing on? And dear friends, when we trust in Jesus, it doesn't mean that we'll have a success rate. It doesn't mean that everybody will know our name. It simply means that the name which is above every name, the name of which one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord, will be passed on. And he will rule and reign forever. And we wait for that day. I want us to bow our heads this morning just a moment appreciate so much your patience your attention this morning I want you to just think in the busyness of your life it is so difficult sometimes dear friends to get any kind of perspective you're running from thing to thing you're just doing what you got to do to survive and who doesn't understand that but to be able if you could just in this moment to step back and reflect and to ask yourself is what I'm living for right now worth dying for am I living for the temporary things of this earth or am I living for eternity friends we don't know how long we have but we do know this one day we will stand before God this life is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away tis one life will soon be passed only what's done for Christ will last if you hear anything out of my preaching or brother Jerry's preaching or whoever is preaching from week to week hear this Jesus is worth it he's worthy he's the lamb who was slain seated at the right hand of the throne of God you can't impeach him and he won't resign you can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Today, if you'll trust him, he will receive you. Father, I pray right now that just as you have sent men and women out of this very church over the years, that you would send them again 
out into a world that may largely reject the message. And yet we know there will be some who will receive it. Some who will claim that Jesus Christ is Lord. God, it's my prayer here today for someone that doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. May today be the day of salvation as they turn from themselves and place their faith in you. God, bring in, raise up, send out a generation that is all in for you. And use us to do it, we pray, in the name of Jesus.